not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. So while it's good to talk about serious things, it's just as important and just as American to have some fun. Now, let's have some fun. Welcome back to another episode of Leaning Middle, everybody. I'm Eric. And I'm Brian. And today we're going to be taking a look down the deep dive of Biden's first week in office and specifically the executive orders that have been signed and specifically how a lot of them um, will shape climate policy moving forward. Yeah, it's been interesting. He's he's getting a lot of flack on these executive orders right now and uh, for several different reasons. And, you know, one of them is. He said in his campaigning, I will not rule by executive order. And to date, he has signed more executive orders than any other president in their first week of office. Exactly. And it's going to be big. You know, that was a major promise. So what we're going to see here over the next few months is will he hold that promise up by making sure that these executive orders become legislation? Or will he have to default on that promise and rely on the executive orders to govern? That's what the million dollar question is moving forward now. That, that is, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where when you look at it, you kind of go, you know, okay, he signed quite a few executive orders right off the bat. And you ask yourself, um, you know, how is that in, relative to other presidents? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's got 22 executive orders in the first week. The next closest one to him is Obama at five. Donald Trump did four. So he's really he's really laying into those executive orders. And a lot of it is to repeal some of the things that that Trump ended up doing. Um, And some of them, you know, it's what he's doing right now has vast um, implications across a lot of different avenues. But what he's really doing right now is he is not helping himself, in my opinion, curb the narrative that we're moving to a socialist country. He's using executive orders to basically manage and turn all by himself this country in a different direction. That's true. I think when you really look at the full list of executive orders, though, it's not, you know, we'll get through them as we kind of nail down the list. But none of these are very extreme. And I think a lot of them are also covid specific. You know, I'm very curious if we weren't in the midst of a global pandemic, what that count would look like, you know. There was definitely a lot of immediately going in and trying to undo what Donald Trump passed, for sure. You know, I would never deny that. But that being said, you know, the first one that was signed off the bat was the mask mandate for federal properties. So it's interesting that that kind of shows where the focus is, is I think, um, you know, in the incoming administration's mind, they said, the former administration did not do enough for COVID and they needed to get a handle on things quickly. You know, they couldn't wait for Schumer and McConnell to figure out a power sharing deal in the Senate. So they said, screw this, you know, we're not going to wait for that and then wait for potential obstructionism for things like mask mandates and just, you know, Defense um, Production Act. So that's where Biden did everything he could, you know, very quickly to get that under control. So Whereas, you know, there might be fear mongering involved with it. When you really do look into the, you know, the, the 
bits of a lot of these, it seems more that he is trying to do a knee-jerk response for a lot of the COVID-involved executive orders. Do all of them look like that? No. And I think that's what's going to be interesting to discuss. Well, I I think you have you're you're right. Some of them are most of them are COVID related and climate related. And the climate aspect of it, I think, is what's really getting the right up in arms. Yeah. Um, I don't think anybody's arguing the COVID side of it. Um, because I think everybody, even even the um, the Republicans want this vaccine done. They want it, you know, we want herd hum- uh, immunity. We want to get, get past this. And, you know, we can't really start unifying the country until we can kind of get back to some type of normalcy. But one of the, the things that really concerns me with, with this is the, um, the frequency in which he's signing these and how he's, he's spreading them apart and, you know, one of the things that, that you kind of brought up was a lot of these seem very um, minor, very, very small executive orders and everything else. But, you know, you're in the, the marketing industry. And, and one of the things we talk about all the time is perception is reality. So mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if they're small. What's what is causing some uproar right now is just the 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 mass of them, the, and and what they're doing. I mean, some of these are, are fairly significant uh, executive orders, but it's almost like he's throwing so many out there that you almost kind of ask yourself, especially if you're the right and and you're, you're still angry and you don't recognize him as a legitimate president. You kind of look at it and go, wait a second. What's he trying to cover up? Cause that's a, that's a typical government move right there. It is. I mean, it is tricky to say. It's it's interesting. Um, just like reading down the list, it's, it's 13 of them are directly related to COVID. And some of them range from very normal to very aggressive. You know, some of these really do have long lasting implications moving forward. But, um, you know, I think, like you said, there's a few things that are really grinding the gears of the right right now, which is climate and immigration and we'll you know we'll touch on that kind of as we start rolling down the list but the immigration i think is really what's um worrying a lot of people on the right just because go ahead go ahead well i was gonna say texas won their lawsuit today right yeah so they have a temporary stay this is something that isn't um unexpected you know this is what we saw a lot with trump's muslim country ban is initially that got several different stays placed on it but it eventually goes into effect and uh that's kind of similar to what texas is going through now you know nobody can tell the federal government how and when to handle deportations like it's just it's the federal government's job so they can deny, they can delay it for time, you know, but Ken Paxton saying he won anything's kind of comical, but um, that will go into effect, you know, once these court orders are eventually, ex- you know, they, they burn out because if it does get to the point where it reaches the Supreme court, they're going to side with the federal government because they have total rights. So yeah. it's kind of delaying the inevitable, but um, you know, it's part of the process so many people on the left, you know, like I just, said with the Muslim ban is every time Trump signed one of these more intensive executive orders that seemed like they were restricting somebody's rights initially, you know, they were swamped on, they were jumped on. And then many times they did have to escalate to the Supreme court. So it's part of the game. Well, 
And, and I think that's part of the frustrating thing is because here recently in, in the last few presidents, it really seems to me like we're doing more and more governing by executive orders. And then the, the president comes in, the new president comes in and spends the first, you know, several days or weeks just undoing executive orders that were signed before him that were undoing executive orders from the president in front of him. It, it seems like this vicious cycle. And that's to- exactly what's happened. The la- you know, Trump came in, wiped out Obama's Biden's comes in and wipes out Trump's and it does, it seems silly. And it's like, is this really the future of politics? It, and so to me, you know, an executive order is a temporary move is the way it's really become. And we got to start making these executive orders legislation or yep. be, because otherwise we're just going to going to get on this treadmill and continuously this four year cycle. We're in the who and next yep. four year cycle. If somebody else wins and they want to take us out, we're out of the who or the exactly. board or, or whatever. So at what point do we just go? damn, let's just make some some laws out of this and get off of this treadmill and start moving our country in, in a direction. It's true. It, it, it's true. And it gets to a point where it's like, why do we have a Senate? You know, if, if, they're, if it's that broken, that the only thing Senate has actually passed, you know, meaningfully in the last several years is a budget. You know, almost nothing has been passed in Senate in 10 20 years because it's outside of, you know, maybe things around 9-11 or things around the COVID relief, you know, sweeping bipartisan measures. But when you're when there isn't an, an, an absolute crisis in the country, it is broken, you know, and we can kind of get into what that might look like under Biden and the potential things he can do to try to alleviate some of the pressures that a blocked Senate has for him. But it will. It is just tricky to see these executive orders um, be signed and then undone, and then signed and undone. So let, let's go down the list, though. Let's start taking a look yeah, at let's do it. some of the different ones. So first one that he signed immediately um, coming into the White House was um, requiring mask and physical distancing and other health measures while on federal property. So that is just a mask mandate for every property the president controls, which is anything owned by the federal government. So this isn't surprising. Yeah. You know, he came in, he campaigned on this. He said immediately he's trying to create a program for where everybody in the country wears masks for a hundred days and just says, Hey, if we all do this just for three months, like we'll knock this out. We'll see how that goes. But this is clearly kind of the first step in that direction. So Again, yeah, not not too not too crazy, nothing nothing wild. The next one is organizing and mobilizing um, the government to provide a unified response to combat COVID nineteen rather than kicking it down to the states. Too late. Too late. But does he have any other but it, choice? At, at least what? we're we're getting there. Exactly. You know, at this point, like it's unfortunate that we did learn that the Trump administration had a very limited. Um, vaccine rollout plan and did not really tell the states, give them any guidance. So, you know, it is unfortunate that he was left in that position. But I I think, you know, we need to have a unified response around this. So I'm feeling more optimistic around the COVID response moving forward. And I think had we had a vaccine early on, and it was still somewhat contained, or, you know, it's, 
here's the thing. It's a global pandemic. It's not a state pandemic. And so at at some point, the federal government really, it's their job to step in and go, okay, this is beyond worrying about the states controlling their stuff. And this is about, we have to take care of our country because this became a countrywide issue, not just a state issue and just going, okay, we got it. And then handing it off to the States and go, that's, that's okay, what's do what you want to do. That's what sickened me more than anything with the administration is they turned it into a, a state issue where they made it a game. Oh, look at South Dakota. It has zero cases and it's run by a strong Republican woman where all these democratic cities are filled. And I was, I just, I never felt less American in those moments. And of course, you know, it, it obviously shot them, in the foot because you know the dakotas are the worst hotspot in the country right now but it also just flipped that i never understood that division narrative during this time when we needed to be working together more than ever um right. but hey you know we've touched on how um we disagree with the former administration's response in many areas so we don't need to beat the dead horse with that one because the next no. one is interesting as well because it is rejoining the world health organization the joining the World Health Organization, uh, first of all, I personally never thought we should leave the World Health Organization at in the midst of a global pandemic. It, let's get through the pandemic and then you can have whatever beef you want with them. But let's work as a global community to try and do this. Now, I know we left because we felt like the World Health Organization was covering for uh, China or not holding them accountable or, or whatnot. But packing up your lunch and, and walking away didn't help. No, no. I mean, that's uh, anybody who wants who endorses or wants to leave the World Health Organization is is just ignorant of what global health policy looks like, you know, because at the end of the day, it's and I don't say that in ignorant in a demeaning way, but just isn't aware that, you know, what the World Health Organization does and why we provide so much money and resources to it is because in countries with underdeveloped healthcare systems, you know, from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, perfect example, which is dealing with an Ebola outbreak right now, because of the World Health Organization, we understood what was happening in that country. We were able to have resources to contain it within communities in that country. You know, the World Health Organization is what stops Ebola, is what stops majority of these pandemics from starting. And yes, you know, nobody bats a thousand. So unfortunately, we're in the midst of one right now that got out of control. But without them and without our leadership, because we are by far the largest donor, without the money that we give them, we are putting ourselves at infinitely amount more risk for this to just start to happen every five years, not every century. But now I will say, don't you think that it's fair for some of these other countries to pull a little bit more of their own weight? I mean, all we're really I mean, doing we, is if you we just look at the GDP, we, we're yeah, but we we can't fund the World Health Organization ourselves, are we? I mean, we we aren't funding the World Health Organization by any means because it, it really is. It comes down to what the GDP looks like. And we make, we are by far the world's largest economy. So we would in turn probably, yeah, be supplying as much money as possible to it because it it is an NGO. I mean, it's not, 
there's nothing legal necessarily about the World Health Organization. You know, there's nothing that they can have consequences for. So it is it is a gentleman's agreement, for lack of a better term. But I, I don't disagree I, I, with our funding of it based on our position in the world. But my, my aspect of it is I, I'm all for keeping gentlemen agreements as long as everybody else holds up their end of the bargain. And that is, are they actually paying what they're supposed to be paying? Oh, yeah. I don't think the payment was ever the issue. It was more just the fact that the WHO believed what China was saying when China was definitely giving, you know, different or wrong information early on when they weren't being public about what they were dealing with. The WHO believed them rather than pushed on them. And it's kind of the same issue that I have with the United Nations where, Yeah, you know, the United Nations can say they condemn things, but they can't go in and actually make anybody be honest or make anybody change. And it's kind of the same thing with the WHO. I don't believe, I think us leaving the WHO was 100% political. I don't, and when it comes down to it, it was to try to take a stab at China and to deflect blame to them on how they initially handled it, which I think they deserve a lot of that you know, worry and kind of pressure that were put on them. But our beef shouldn't be with the WHO. It should be right. with the country of China. And well, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, I was yeah. going to say, and I think that it's worth mentioning that we are actually, we never left the WHO. Thank you for clarifying that. We were slated to leave, but now we a- just. A- April of 2021 was yes. when we were supposed to leave. Yes, that is definitely worth noting, as um, I've been saying, we haven't been a part of it. But yes, we were planning on leaving and just we retracted a lot of um, our involvement in the organization, of course. Correct. So um, next one up is promoting COVID safety in domestic and international travel, basically just any um, airline or, you know, space that the federal government controls, you're mandated to wear a mask, so... Pretty, pretty much just goes in line with what he was saying earlier, just extending that into specifically um, transportation. So any airline or any um, space that we cover? Yep. Airline, trains, ferries, inner city buses, um, any, and anybody who is coming to the U.S. has to provide proof of a recent um, negative test. And that kind of varies that time range on when they need to have that negative test by country and how that country is performing in terms of COVID um, infection rates. Okay. Does that include Space Force? (laughs) Sorry, I can pass it up. (laughs) I'm sure at this point. Yeah, that's – we got to – we got to see what's going on with Space Force. I'm curious if they're going to like keep Space Force or get rid of I don't know what all the Guardians are going to do if they disband the Space Force, but and and that's the next question we're using the National Guard right now. Can we use the Space Force Guardians to help with COVID containment as well? Exactly. We never know what could happen from uh intra orbit. But <laughs> The uh, So let's see. So uh, executive order on improving and expanding access to care and COVID treatments. So, again, the biggest and, one is just making sure we can pump out as much Regeneron, as much as these evidence-based medicines as possible to help people who yeah. have already been sickened. And, and Which, I don't think anybody argues with that one. 
No, and Donald Trump did something early and he let it expire. So he's really just kind of picking up on what the previous administration um, kind of let fall off since they just they just weren't really focused on much, you know, the last couple months. So um, he's kind of just picking up where things kind of fell on the yeah. floor there while they were worrying about the uh, the outcome, the ultimate outcome of the election. Yeah. So next one is ensuring data-driven response to COVID-19 and high-consequence public health threats. So basically just making sure that the federal government is working with state administrations and health departments to have the resources to actually be able to collect meaningful data so that our responses to these situations are based off of data rather than, you know, intuition. We, it's unfortunate what we're going through right now, but at the same time, the fact that we're going through it in the digital age means that we're going to be able to learn an unbelievable amount moving forward on how we handle public health crises. Well, and, you know, that sounds very common sense, but the previous administration had a different point of view at this, right? I mean, they, after all, took reporting and data collection away from the CDC and put it into a third-party data company. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore... They separated the data, they separated the White House from the data, and they separated the CDC from the data. If those three aren't talking, then how do they expect everybody else to be talking? Exactly. You know, and it's like I'm all for capitalism in some ways, but I really don't think a third party um, team needs to be handling our public health data. You know, right. that that that's something that needs to be coordinated under the government that they need to be able to have access and eyes on at all times and forming that charge. That's something that I would like to see in-house. We don't need to pitch that because, you know, we work in business. We see businesses that we work with dissolve. We see them change course. We see people that are really good that we like working with leave, you know, and it's like, that's what worries me is like, what well, is that third company going on in there? Whereas within yeah. the government, you have more people who end up becoming veterans in their work, in their roles, like Fauci, for example. Right. Um, okay. Next. Yes. Yeah, sustainable public health supply chain. So again, yeah, just make sure pandemic response and every and PPE is created and distributed at a good rate. Nothing, nothing crazy there. Um, this one has gotten a little bit of blowback because it is does involve race in some degree, as the it is ensuring an equitable pandemic response and recovery. Meaning. So right now we're seeing there's actually no official data as the Trump administration was not collecting race data of COVID victims, um, which is very unfortunate in my opinion. But there's an understanding that the pandemic has grossly impacted the Latino as well as the black communities versus the white communities. So it's making sure that as these resources become available, that everybody's receiving equitable access, you know, regardless of what race they are or what, you know, mon like money bracket that they fall in. Somebody who is yeah. poor on the wrong side of the track should be able to get the same treatment as somebody who is, you know, a millionaire um, if they're equally as sick. That's yep. what it comes down to. And I, I think that's good, but I understand that people are worried about, you know, anytime race or things get brought up for whatever reason. Um, they feel well, that it's a, an attack against their race or something. I'm not sure the response to it, but I'd have I, heard know, people upset. That kind of opens up an argument a little bit on 
who should be getting the vaccine first. Obviously, the yeah. elderly, um, yeah. you know, autoimmune disease uh, people. I'm I'm falling that category, so I obviously think that that should be up there because uh, yep. they have weaker <laughs> immune systems and everything else. Uh, but there's an argument going on on who should be able to get the um, the vaccine first, and it kind of falls into this executive order a little bit with the equitable side of it because. Some people go, like, why did our government officials get the vaccine uh, so early on? Yeah, especially and, when you look at several of them, like Joni Ernst down of Iowa was saying that it, you know, was downplaying it, saying you don't need to worry about it, don't wear a mask, and then she's getting a vaccine on day one. It kind of, it paints, you know, a, a, a rocky narrative. Well, and and you have to kind of look at it and go from the big business side of it. I mean, if your leadership gets COVID quarantined and is out and everything else, you know, you, you really got to look at um, the, the business side of it. And you need people running businesses because that's what's keeping our economy going. Yep, absolutely. So is, is, there, a, um, is there a play for um, leaders uh, or business people to, to be able to do that? Now, there's your millionaires. There's your billionaires. Yeah. And all I that just stuff. don't think but, if Jeff Bezos got COVID, Amazon would stop functioning. I, I don't think, not on that level. But yeah, I sh- I, that he, was as ridiculous as I could make. You're right. right. But, um, <laughs> but, yeah. I, and I think that's one of the, the things that, you know, in our last episode, we kind of talked about what do Republicans believe, and they believe in big business and everything else. But one of the things that we have to remember is 99.7% of business is done on the small business level. Yeah. And COVID hitting a leadership role, if you don't have your company um, structured just right, or you don't have the right people in place, or um, you're doing a lot of it on your own, and you get COVID and you get sick and you go to the hospital and you're out of work for you know two weeks, that's a lifetime inside the business community. And so, you know, I, I, there's a there's an argument there to to say that you know the people that are, are driving this economy should be looking at getting it. Yeah, I think early, you know, early on. Yeah, we need at, at the end of the day, it is like it's embarrassing. You know how many people have been vaccinated so far? The initial vaccine rollout was a total disaster and it continues yeah. to be. So right now we're, uh, you know, we're seeing kind of some, com- com- you know, for I, I hate to be, you know, this combative, but some actual competence come into the mix and start to really run this thing. So, you know, he's hoping to get 150 million people vaccinated, which is over a third of the country, almost a half of the country within the next 100 days. Well, that is at least the first shot in arms in the next 100 days. So that is, if we can get to that point and it's April, I think, you know, we're kind of out of the woods, but it, it really I, I, is going to be the million dollar question of if it isn't smooth, if we aren't able to make this work and the Biden administration falters and fails, yeah, what does that pecking order look like? You don't, you you can't say for sure. No, you can't. Uh, I know we were going to try and keep it pretty short today, so I'll let you, you go on through the, the next couple. I was going to say, I was just going to kind of roll through because a lot of them are protecting worker safety. Um, so this is actually one that we is, is very combative because it's allowing um, – 
Well, no, this one is actually just reviewing the Safety and Health Act so they can identify changes to protect people from COVID better. But that has a longer lasting implication of potentially letting work uh, employees sue their workplace for not protecting them from COVID. But that, again, yeah. is speculation that that'll happen. Yep. Um, there's the one on supporting the reopening and continuing operation of school and daycare centers. So just, you know, making sure that schools have a plan on how to open safely. You know, I think we've heard from a lot of administrators that they uh, would like a federal response. They would like some direction on what to do and how to do it. So hopefully they can put some structure throughout there. He uh, extended a pause on student loan payments at a 0% interest rate. So again, just making sure um, people, you know, have money to eat during, uh, while the pandemic wraps up. There is, there was been no student debt canceled. So nobody worry about that. This is just an extension of a Trump order. Um, the economic relief related to the COVID pandemic. So he is directing all of the agencies to um, consider actions to kind of help out the economic crisis. So again, just kind of make, telling everybody in the government, hey, this is a focus. Very um, not, uh, you know, more of a, doesn't have a lot of teeth to it. It is a, uh, right. I'm thinking, the word's escaping me, but more meaningful, but not, um, no real action behind it. So right, no, in the work, go ahead. No, no substantial impact. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so first one is protecting in the workforce related ones is protecting the federal workforce, which expands protections for federal workings, including putting federal agencies on a path to require a 15 minimum wage for contractors. So that is one that has a lot of people worked up um, regarding the minimum wage. Um, I, I think I've heard a lot of false reporting on this, specifically from right wing news agencies saying that he is trying to just make the minimum wage $15 when there actually hasn't really been a set plan on how that escalation looks. People have been playing around with the idea of increasing it slowly over the next five years to the point of 2026, maybe meeting that threshold of $15. But I, I understand, you know, the, the economic concern of, well, if you raise the minimum wage, everything else is going to go up and, you know, you're going to ruin small businesses. But I also think we're at a point of, you know, a lot of people like uh, a much I'd say well over 60% of minimum wage jobs are not held by teenagers. You know, they are held by people. They are held by single parents. And uh, I would like to see the minimum wage increase just because, you know, I know the reality of trying to kind of make it as like a young adult, fresh out of college, having built up a lot of wealth and then boom, pandemic. And it is brutal, you know, and I'm making much more than minimum wage. So I can't imagine somebody who's in a different position and what, what their life actually looks like right now. It has to be absolutely horrific. So it's, it's hard because there's a lot of things we need to consider with it. But at the same time, I personally think we need to see it happen. What are your thoughts? I, you know, this is a, a tough one because, you know, I do run a small business and yeah, absolutely. I, I do look at the impact of uh, what that will do. Now I will, I will tell you that I don't have anybody making minimum wage. I have interns that are, are making a little over minimum wage and they um, don't even technically need to be paid. I think so. It's just yeah, on top of it, it all. <laughs> right. Right. And so, but 
you know, you, you look at it and you go from an operation standpoint, you go, mm-hmm. okay, I have to increase my payroll. Well, payroll is already usually right around 30, 45% of your cost right off the top. Got and it. then you look at rent and then you look at um, not only that, but you look at what else does it take to um, sustain an employee? What, what nobody really thinks about the software costs that go into it, the training exactly. costs that go into it, all this stuff. So now you, you're saying I have to still do all this other stuff and I've got to increase this. Well, I have to make that up somewhere. Yeah, we haven't right? even got into the other overhead and stuff that is involved. It just, it exactly. is. It's like, it, it, you know, it, equipment and mm-hmm. goods and services and, or goods and products and, and, you know, delivery costs, mail costs, you know, printing costs, um, you know, phone lines. I mean, you just, you get into it and there's a lot of cost that goes into this. And then you, you just want to increase. And, and what it sounds like, and here's what, here's where I think this argument could really be curbed is yeah. if, if somebody would go, or if everybody would just go, okay, obviously we're not going to come in and just make it happen. You're okay, so, so right. It's so bad that that doesn't happen. Right. And so if somebody said, came in and said, Hey, we've got a two year plan to get it here, man, I'm all for it. Yeah. You know, people, yeah. people shouldn't have to make a choice between food and rent and clothing you know mm-hmm. you obviously you gotta make a choice on what clothing you buy but yeah you, you know, know you can't be going to uh you know uh gucci you're not buying time, gucci or, on yeah. minimum wage exactly yeah no exactly <laughs> you know yeah. when i was young and working minimum wage i kind of i think i tried to do that a couple times but you know well, i was living like, at home yeah. at the time <laughs> i was gonna say we were young adults at that point too. Yeah. i made my share of terrible financial decisions but adults yes working adults right. making minimum wage are not not making decisions like that so it but, is but, uh but here's the yeah. impact of that as well is cost of goods are gonna have to go up you from a business standpoint i have to cover that margin somewhere which Mm -hmm. is going to mean that even though i am paying you more the cost of everything that you still need is going to go up so it's not really going to address the problem yeah we'll we'll have to see kind of what it looks like because again you know this is just the executive order and it only applies to federal agencies you know so it it really we're not there's obviously a lot of talk about it in the senate there's a lot of push for it in the house as well so we will see this legislation come up but right now i think um it is it's an interesting debate and i think right now the way that it's phrased is good you know, including putting federal agencies on a path to require a $15 minimum wage for contractors. You know, it does not say requiring. It says put them on a path to require. Right. So it's saying let's do some research behind this. So we'll yeah. see. Um, and then ensuring uh, the future is made in all of America by all of American workers. Increase the amount of federal spending that goes into American companies and orders and increase in domestic content. So basically just taking more and more things and starting to produce them in America, especially regarding federal contracts. I mean, I don't I don't want to get any backlash on this or anything, but doesn't that kind of sound like make America great again's idea? Exactly. It's it's I mean, that's what's interesting is to see, you know, Donald Trump sold it on this platform and then failed to ever implement it. 
you know, nothing ever actually happened. So now Biden's trying to do the same thing. And is this executive order going to fall flat and, you know, fall apart? Or is it going to actually, you know, turn into something where we are going to see American manufacturers actually being favored as contractors by the federal government? Yeah, it, we, we we'll see. But uh, it's that one's going to get a little uh, little hairy because the Republicans are, are really going to have a hard time arguing with that one. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 going to be tricky, but they'll so probably now, now here's find, the thing though. Yeah. If you if you think about that and you go okay, we're going to ramp up manufacturing and we're going to make more things in America for America. Well, that kind of counteracts the next executive order that he signed, correct? Which is the protecting of well, basically overall um, there's a lot of pieces to it, but it's the cancellation of the XL pipeline. Correct. So in my mind, we the XL pipeline was taking Canadian crude oil down to American refineries. And it had um, how many jobs y- we were speaking before and you mentioned, you said 5,700 or 7,300? 11,000. 11,000. So you have um, 11,000 jobs, 8,000 of those were union jobs, 8,000 of those were union. Okay. And that is what has been the result of this policy, which is 11,000 people have lost their job due to this pipeline being uh, the permit process for it being revoked. So um, yeah, this, this one is the is immediately you're seeing all of a sudden you're seeing a lot of Republicans really start to care about union rights. But um, regardless, what, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I guess my question is why, why was this so high on the list? Because he signed this one on uh, January 20th, the first day he was in office. What is it about this particular issue that is so important that he had to sign that on day one? It was his way of stepping into office and immediately saying that he respects the rights of the Native American community of this country. Because there is, you know, well, the one thing that we see with the Keystone XL pipeline is it ran directly through Standing Rock Indian Reservation and was then actually polluting the river running through Standing Rock uh, Indian reservation as it was leaking. And that is where we saw a lot of those really, really brutal protests. There was a lot of um, unfortunate brutality on the end of the federal government to remove people from that land so they could create the pipeline. But that, in my mind, is something Biden um, campaigned on, which was A, the reduction of um, reliance on oil, and B, rights you know for the original members of this country so that in my mind is why he jumped on that number one well you know i think this one was a little bit more um controversial it it was i I don't know how to say this without just making people angry but it's you know i was listening to ted cruz talk earlier this evening and and he made a statement that that Kind of to me, even though I don't agree with Ted Cruz, um, it, what he, the statement he made sounded pretty legit from a Republican standpoint, which was 
Joe Biden sat up there and talked about unity and made this great speech and then turned around and within minutes started signing executive orders, basically punching the Republican Party in the mouth. And the Republican Party has stood with oil and gas and they have stood with this industry. Um, and the first thing he does in office is go and just punch them right in the nose. Ah, yeah. You know, it's that I think is Ted, in my mind, that doesn't make any sense. You know, you, you can, you can align yourself with whatever your donors are, but in my mind to say that's an attack on the Republican party is Ted Cruz looking for a reason to be upset. Well, well, look at it, but look at it this way. We live in Texas. There are over 400,000 oil and gas industry jobs in Texas alone. And he just just signed an order that the XL pipeline doesn't, even come within a thousand miles of Texas. Like, but it, but, it, 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 but it's, it's not, an attack. Though. It's not. But it, that's it my seems like an it. attack on the oil and gas industry. Well, it's really well, specifically be, when you tie in the other ones, like the the um, the banning, which I agree with. So don't don't take it this don't take this one wrong. But the oh, banning yeah, yeah. of exploration uh, drilling on federal lands. Which I know you're going to get to that one in a minute, but I'm I'm kind of yeah. jumping ahead a little bit. But you know, it seems like he's attacking the oil and gas industry. So of course you're going to get mad if you're in that industry, because mm-hmm. that's your livelihood, and it's already a volatile industry. It is, and it's volatile because it's not reliable. It's, we're getting to a point where we can we can act like this is going to last forever we can we can tell ourselves we're not going to run out of oil we can tell ourselves we're not damaging the environment to a point where we're not going to be able to extract resources from it anymore it's just going to kind of deplete itself but that is the direction that we are heading very rapidly as a country and if we don't address the reliance on the oil industry that we have there won't be an america to really worry about so but, but that's the problem you're not addressing the reliance that you have on the oil and gas industry, you're just cutting it. Where, where is it, where, where where is it you, being cut? Well, but the, the other industries are not sustainable enough to outproduce what we're doing on crude oil right now. Yeah, but crude oil just being drilled on federal land is not going to decrease the necessary supply of crude oil we need. You know, Biden was very forthright, even in debates about the fact that we're not trying to get rid of oil, you know, anytime soon. But moving forward by 2050, you know, in 20, 30 years, we really need to get to a point of zero emissions or else we're going to lose. Like humanity is then doomed. So I won. I 100 percent agree with that. What I don't agree with is taking action against an industry without a solution to supplement that. If you cut oil and gas jobs, where are those guys going to go? How are you transitioning them into renewable energies? I understand that, but you know, every every action does have the equal and opposite reaction, and we can talk about these eight thousand workers. You know, union workers are 11,000 total workers, 3,000 contractors who are going to lose their contracts in the next year or so regardless. But the 8,000 union workers, we could talk about them all day. But then we can also look at the Standing Rock Reservation community and say, did they deserve no say on what gets built in their sovereign land? Did they deserve to potentially have poisoned water supplies? And there's much more than 8,000 Native Americans. So I understand 
I'm sorry, uh, 8,000 Native Americans within that reservation. Right. So it, it is, it's hard, but we also have to look at, you know, there, it's not like these, there's zero impact that's being placed on something like this pipeline. I, I feel terrible that these guys are losing their jobs, but I'm more pissed off at the government forever even putting this together and giving people these jobs when they should have been able to find them in a different way. And I think, unfortunately, in this specific instance, we totally have reached a breaking point where we need to do the right thing and, you know, let the people who own that land have control over it and sovereignty. But that does unfortunately impact a lot of other Americans as well. No, I, and I 100% agree with you. I mean, that thing should have never been built on their land without a say. I mean, it, and it, it, you could even go deeper than that and say, we already took their land and forced them into a certain plot of land. And then we took advantage of that land again. I mean, when does this yeah, stop now? Right. Mm-hmm. But the, 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 the thing needs to be how can we fix the problem and what is the impact of, of bringing that oil in from from Canada, who is ultimately our number one supplier of oil as well. And, you know, so when you've got you've got Canada coming out talking about how disappointed they are in this, I understand they're disappointed and we need to fix that problem on on that. And again, I don't disagree with the cancellation the of the Keystone. Is... I, I disagree with the timing of it, and I disagree with the the uh, lack of a perceived option to help these guys because what they're doing right now is they're driving these guys straight back into the Republican Party, and they're mad. And if you look at it, they're they're going to go; they're more likely to fall into the extreme side of the right right now. I hear you. I'm actually very curious because I haven't actually read, and this is my own lack of research, not that I'm saying there isn't any out there, but I'm very curious what they are saying. You know, it's like I really have only heard from the Ted Cruz's of the world or the Fox News's of the world. I haven't really heard from the unions themselves. And I think that would be interesting to kind of research and we can bring that up um, on a subsequent episode. But it is. It's. We'll have to kind of take a look, but the next executive order does kind of start to address um, periods of how we're going to actually start to produce jobs. Okay, so um, actually what I'd, I'd like to suggest that maybe we hold this one. We're at an hour already yeah. and do, do this one as a part two. I'd, we got a little into the, the executive orders a little bit more than you and I thought we were going to. Um, Absolutely. You, you want to do a part two? Yeah, let's do a part two. Right now, we'll end it with this one, um, which is the acceptance of the Paris Climate Agreement. So they have, once again, the country, we have rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement, um, which is an attempt to try to reduce global carbon emissions on a global scale. Um, Very symbolic agreement. It is uh, confusing me why we're worried about this one, but we can jump into the bits and pieces of that and more on the next one. I have some very specific thoughts on why people are are upset about this one. So tune in to the next one. Uh, It's definitely going to be good. And uh, we're going to go a little bit more in depth on, on some of these executive orders. So stay tuned. Make sure you follow us, like us on any platform that you're catching us on. And definitely share us with your friends. And it doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right. It is time to start leaning towards the middle and figuring out our path forward.